Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Leah Lewis. Dr. Leah Lewis is an assistant professor, counseling psychologist, creative arts therapist, and project lead of the Open Art Studio, or Art Hive. Art hives are forms of community-based practice grounded in social justice and art therapy frameworks. Also known as open studios, art hives create publicly accessible spaces for people to gather, exchange, and make art. The Art Hive Project at Holy Heart is working with newcomer youth attending the English as a Second Language programming there, all of whom are immigrants and or refugees. Dr. Lewis, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's a delight to have you, to get to have a chat about art hives. So um, I, I have to admit that this, the, the concept of an art hive wasn't something that I was overly familiar with. So mm. can, you, can you tell me a little bit about where the idea comes from and what an art hive is in practice? Sure. Um, art hives, as you uh, stated in your, in your introduction, are a form of community-based practice that originated in urban centers in the U.S., um, really um, informed heavily by uh, the the discipline of art therapy, um, but art therapy informed via kind of community psychology, social justice movements, and even some kind of feminist frameworks, and inspired largely uh, around issues of accessibility. So uh, therapy, psychotherapeutic services have are often not fully accessible to everyone. So creating community-based spaces that potentially have um, health implications, mental health implications, uh, became a priority. So a lot of the kind of art hive movements began in kind of urban centers of the U.S. Um, and and um, my mentor in Art Hive, Dr. Janice Timbotos, who is a faculty in the Creative Arts Therapies at Concordia, um, has been, you know, sort of a leading scholar in the area and has started and been involved with a lot of the Art Hive movement in the U.S. And I would say she is uh, a forerunner in bringing the Art Hive movement to uh, to Canada. Um, there's a number of Art Hives spread across uh, the city of Montreal where, where uh, Dr. Tim Bodos works and teaches. Um, and that was my first exposure. So really kind of grounded in community-based practice and uh, providing accessible space and service to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how does that, how does it look or how does it function when you, when you walk in as a participant? Um, so the, you know, the word studio is a, a fairly descriptive term. So, uh, art hives, um, come in different forms. So there are kind of permanent set art hives that are, uh, art-based studios that are, uh, consist of a number of craft and art supplies, uh, space to work, food access, that people can come and independently make art, or people can come and take uh, part in grassroots programming. So a lot of the programming that occurs in an urban art hive is programming that's created by the participants themselves based on need and want. Um, the art hive that I'm facilitating, uh, along with my team at Holy Heart, would be what you'd refer to as a pop-up art hive. So uh, creating an art-making studio space for the 
for a period of a few hours um, so that participants can come and take part in a studio atmosphere that gets dismantled uh, after the three-hour period. Mm-hmm. So, so when you when you first became introduced to this, what kinds of uh, participants did, were involved in the ones in Montreal? What kind of audience or, or community was involved? Well, the example I'll give is the one that's fairly well known. It's called La Ruche d'Art, which is an art hive that is situated in the neighborhood of St. Henry in Montreal. And uh, it's it's worth sort of specifying St. Henry is a fairly kind of economically marginalized uh, neighborhood of Montreal located, quote unquote, south of the tracks. Um, And it's even though it's an urban center, it's actually kind of removed and has kind of limited access to other parts of the city just because of its location. And its demographic tends to be uh, un or underemployed individuals who are socioeconomically marginalized. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was um, purpose in bringing the art hive to that particular location. And it's actually located in a storefront property. So when you walk by, this studio is visible from the street and it's inviting. Uh, anyone is welcome to step out, step in and make art, make themselves a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and visit. Um, so the hive itself acts as a community space that over the years has actually been accessed fairly prolifically by uh, by the local community. And in fact, some of the local community have are actually employees of the hive now. Um, there's one story in particular of a woman who'd gone decades unemployed and not been and not managed to maintain employment for various personal and health reasons, uh, who is now one of the prominent facilitators of the hive. So that kind of speaks to some of the philosophies of public community based spaces and um, and how engagement actually is a really important feature. Um, and the other thing about the La Ruche archive, which is an inspiration for me, has been an inspiration for me, is that it's also used as a community-based classroom for graduate students who attend Concordia University's Creative Arts Therapies Master's program. So a lot of the art therapy students uh, in that program, which is, by the way, the university where I completed my PhD, partly in that faculty, um, actually complete part of their uh, their internships in community-based practice at the Art Hive. Uh, so they're engaged and immersed in the community. Uh, they facilitate programming collaboratively with community members, and they're really learning in a hands-on way about community-based practice. Um, so that was a big inspiration for me, um, uh, yeah, to bring the kind of concept of the Art Hive to St. John's. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the road that took you to Montreal like how how did you how did you develop this interest in this specialization well i have a background in counseling psychology and creative arts therapies and also in theater and performance mm-hmm. and so the pursuing of my phd really ended up being um a merging of all of those disciplines and really locating the value in arts-based practice. Um, My interest originally has been in performance and continues to be in performance, but through my doctoral studies um, and my creative arts therapies um, training, I have also developed um, an interest in, in 
all forms of arts-based practice, including visual visual art and art engagement, as being potentially therapeutic mm-hmm. um, and having therapeutic qualities to it. And just uh, when we engage in art and arts-based practice, when we uh, watch a performance, um, engaging with art and visual art tends to stimulate parts of the brain that are not stimulated by verbal exchange. Okay. And so it, it integrates um, kind of change process in a different way. Um, so people can access wellness in a way that often feels safer, uh, feels, because, you know, didactic therapy exchange in a, in a therapy session can often be quite intimidating. It doesn't actually work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas working in parallel in, arts, in an arts-based practice with your own internal themes um, can be a safe, secure, and actually um, fairly... Uh, powerful way of of attaining kind of wellness right and and this is one of the things that i wanted to ask you about is is what are what are the strengths of that kind of arts-based therapy practice and and what kinds of people benefit from it more than others perhaps um the art hive is particularly uh designed it has a very loose structure Right. And uh, unlike m- kind of more traditional therapy groups, and, and I want to be cautious over, to overuse the word therapy because the therapeutic uh, implications of art hives are only one of uh, the pieces that we're interested in because it's not primarily a therapeutic practice. So, uh, you know, our facilitator at the art hive isn't a therapist, but she has experience in community-based practice and, and experience in facilitating art hives. So art hives really, the priority of the art hive is, is to create a safe space in which people can uh, work either independently or parallel um, um, without... Uh, evaluation without instruction. Um, so the rules, quote unquote, of the art hive are quite loose. They're really about, it's a non-evaluative space. It's, um, there, we really are careful with ourselves around, uh, providing feedback on the art that's being made. And that's intentional because feedback, whether, uh, even if you're telling somebody that their work is beautiful, um, it the effects of that kind of feedback can be multifaceted like it it really cr- creates this continuum of performance and evaluation that we really are trying not to have in the art space so we really caution and we are really limited around the type of feedback that we offer and um and by encouraging either independent practice or parallel practice so the youth come together to um to work in parallel and to socialize. Um, and art spaces like that can be pr- particularly helpful, well, for young people, so adolescents and teens, who often struggle with traditional therapy um, because there's a, there can be often a feeling of being scrutinized in therapy, which is sort of what therapy is about <laughs> to a certain degree. Um, but the other piece to consider that is the complex history of a lot of these youth that we are working with, with uh, uh, some of whom are refugees, um, it wouldn't be safe to um, 
be specific around or to be intrusive around their narratives and their experiences, nor is it necessarily safe for them to um, to share. Right. So we have to consider that there might be trauma. And so the space really has to be self-directed for the youth. So we we seek to create a contained space in which the youth can work on their own independently um, at the rate and pace that they that they so choose. So, so so walk me through then uh, how the project in St. John's got started. Uh, you, you did your PhD in Montreal. You're back here teaching at Memorial University and working here. How did the Holy Heart Project evolve? It's interesting. You know, when I did my PhD, a big part of my kind of the creative arts angle of my PhD was about combining um, performance and knowledge translation. So it actually didn't have a whole lot to do with archives. But I met and was exposed to the archive concept and attended some archive training while at Concordia, just um, at the same time I was there doing right. my PhD, sure. right? So it wasn't actually part of my, my doctoral research, but it's something that um, appealed to me because of the um, accessibility to certain populations like adolescents. Um, and I also felt like the community in St. John's would receive the archive quite well. Um, and I felt fairly confident about that. So I actually, uh, via my kind of position at Memorial, was able to bring Dr. Tim Bodos in to do uh, a weekend training in Archive. And she gave a presentation within the faculty. And um, through collaboration with colleagues, at, both at MUN and community-based colleagues, um, we we came up with the framework of the archive that was that would specifically uh, work with newcomer youth. The other thing I should mention is that archives are typically not located in institutions, um, like in schools or universities or hospitals. They they tend to be community situated, like in the middle of the community, sure, like yeah. the Larouche, like yeah. the Larouche space in Montreal. However, there's no hard and fast rule, and because archives are about kind of fostering security and fostering feelings of belonging and inclusion towards a greater sense of wellness, um, it seemed highly appropriate to uh, create an archive program for newcomer youth. So that's kind of how, and of course, in negotiation, I'm co uh, colleagues with one of the guidance uh, staff at Holy Heart, uh, Boyd Perry, and he was my entry point. He was, I guess you'd refer to as a gatekeeper right. for me, um, Who and he, uh, he introduced me to a lot of the newcomer faculty at, at Holy Heart. Holy Heart has fairly prolific programming. Um, they have uh, uh, two ESL instructors, and then they have uh, an equivalency program. Uh, you know, so they really have a, a fairly um, comprehensive programming uh, that facilitates kind of newcomer populations. And for, for people who aren't necessarily from St. John's, maybe not be familiar with Holy Heart, Holy Heart is a, a sort of centrally located uh, high school. Correct. In, it's probably in the John's. largest high school in the province, if I'm not mistaken. And so about how, how many students, roughly? 
in the whole school or in the newcomer? In the whole school, I think there's 11 to 1,200 students. So it's a large school. And it really does have a a high percentage of new Canadian students compared to some of the other schools. Correct. There are a few hundred. I I stand to be corrected on this, but I think there's roughly about between two and 300 newcomer youth who are attending the school and who are attending the kind of parallel, what I would say, what I call kind of parallel programming. Um, so there's equivalency programming, there's ESL programming, English as a second language programming that, um, that helps, uh, kind of, uh, integrate the students into traditional programming so they can access their, their high school equivalency. And, and at this moment in time, where are these students coming from? What parts of the world are oh, they Oh, they're from? coming from everywhere. They're coming from multiple African countries, um, Syria and, there, there's a long list of, of countries that the students are coming from. Yeah, yeah. So you get into the school, um, and so how does the how does the art hive work within the context of Holy Heart then? So it we we schedule it uh, in after school hours, so we have to respect the the students' academic schedule, and we run it one day a week. Um, it's ended up being on Wednesday afternoons, which is actually shifted from the original day, and there's a bit of a story with that that's kind of interesting. Um, and we run it we schedule it between uh, 3 and 5.30, so about two and a half hours on Wednesday afternoons. It doesn't always last the full time, so the students are always there right bang at the beginning of the hive. And uh, some of them have part-time jobs or some of them get picked up by their parents, so they don't necessarily stay till the full 5.30, uh, but they they are fairly committed. Yeah, we mm. get a good, we get a big turnout. So what's the story about the shift Well, then? we originally uh, had the hive scheduled on Thursdays, and of course we did a recruitment event and got a lot of interest and uh, and had initially a lot of attendance and then very dramatically and quite quickly overnight our attendance uh, dissipated like it waned and we couldn't quite figure out exactly why that was and we soon learned that and the other piece was it was a very gendered thing it was like the boys just stopped coming and we were wondering what that was about and we soon learned from one of the uh one of the one of the teachers, you know, we have a, a soccer program started on Thursdays <laughs> and the boys were feeling conflicted, but they, the soccer kind of won out, but they've said if Art Hive could be on another day, then maybe they would come back. And so in the interest of, you know, maintain sustained attendance, we had a chat and decided to shift our Art Hive day to Wednesday. And the next Wednesday was the, mo- the, ha- the most <laughs> the most attendees that we had in weeks and uh all the soccer boys and all the soccer boys start <laughs> came back to the art hive and uh and they continue to attend that's great yeah. so uh it was it just really showed that it wasn't through lack of interest i mean soccer won over art hive and in a way i suppose i can understand how that could happen but that there was a genuine genuine interest in doing both and the engagement and being involved in social and activities that center around inclusion um appear to be really important particularly important to this group yeah i was i was asking you before we started uh, i said that i asked if you had gone to holy heart as a as a girl and so now you're you've gone back to school in <laughs> right. the same place yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true and uh and in so, in so many ways the school has not changed <laughs> like yeah. it is um it 
feels, except for just the demographics within the school are very different very from different. when I went there. So what decade were you, would you have been I graduated in the early 90s. Right. So I was kind of post-all girls. So I was there when it was a co-ed school. Because it was an all-girls it, Catholic school. All girls, uh, none... Deve- like Holy Heart was actually built by the nuns, so right, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it has changed. It right? has in really some ways, yeah. changed in in many ways. Although uh, the little that I know of the history of Holy Heart, it was always a school that valued um, arts training, like mm-hmm. um, music. I mean, there's a whole hallway of music studios. Right. Uh, yeah. There's a choral room, which you don't find in Yeah, in the nuns schools. were very big on the music education. Re- the, yeah. And the cultural education, you know. Yeah. And, um, and that piece has really carried through with Holy Heart. And so I wonder, too, if that's part of why and how the Art Hive has been so welcome by Holy Heart staff. Like, we have been, we have created really good uh, working and engaged relationships with the Holy Heart staff. I really, if it weren't for them, the the, pro- the project wouldn't have gone in the direction it it has so um so I feel like there's there's just a philosophy at that school that really values uh, learning through the arts. Who are some of your partners in this project? Um, it's a it's a really not it's a sizable team actually. So um, the project is a, a shirk funded project. So spe- specifically a, a shirk fund that's referred to. Uh, the abbreviation is P2P, which stands for Pathways to Prosperity, and it's a fund that that prioritizes, that, that specifically funds uh, work with uh, immigrant populations across Canada. So th- the reason we were able to access that fund is you need to have a collaborator status. So there are two faculty members within the Faculty of Education, Dr. Heather McLeod, whose background is in art education, and Dr. Shumei Lee, um, who has done a lot of research in Newfoundland, around Newfoundland and Labrador with immigrant populations right. and immigrant youth. So yeah. um, so it was a really nice uh, team, kind of MUN-based team, um, and it was via their status with the Shirk Project that uh, I was able to become a collaborator on the P two with the P two P fund, so we were we were successful with uh, with Shirk and um, and uh, our community partners are Holy Heart. So um, most predominantly our our partners at Holy Heart would be Suzanne McBride and Martha Trahi, who are the ESL instructors. But I previously mentioned Boyd Perry, uh, who was kind of our initial contact, and he facilitated the whole project. And then from the community, uh, our archive facilitator is Kathia Finkel, and she um, has training in in archives and archive and arts-based practice. So she's our, our primary facilitator. And we also have a contributor uh, who's an expert in uh, intercultural communication and whose research is grounded actually in uh, the Newfoundland immigrant population, and that's uh, Dr. Willow Anderson. And her research really in, kind of informed the creating of this project because one of the pieces that came out of her research was that immigrant newcomer populations tend to experience a sort of visceral insider-outsider dynamic and and when attempting to integrate and feel included and access a sense of belonging within Newfoundland Labrador. And that piece was what, um, that piece of research was really what informed using this particular framework uh, 
uh, the Art Hive framework with newcomer youth because it really is about creating a space that fosters experiences of belonging and inclusion mm. um, towards a greater um, a greater integration. And there are implications to that, you know, in terms of kind of larger economic implications that if if newcomers can experience a feeling of being included and being valued, uh, then they're likelier to stay. Mm. Uh, whereas if they don't uh, experience a sense of being valued and included, then they're less likely to stay. Um, and we know that already because we've lost a lot of newcomers within the first five to ten years of arrival in Newfoundland Labrador. Um, so there are kind of broader implications to this kind of work. So, you know, kind of Willow's research has informed that. So we're really, I find, a quite complementary team um, that have come together. The, yeah. Tell me about the kids. Uh, so <laughs> what are they like? What do they, they love doing? What kinds of stuff are they creating? Um, they are a really dynamic bunch. They're... Um, they're highly engaged and actually this week is our final hive we're moving toward an art show of the of uh the students work uh later in april and they're really disappointed that it's that it's come to an end and so are we but that's what happens when you have only so much funding um it's a really interesting group because some of the students um are are new new arrivals so um english is their second or third language and we have to find ways to communicate with them and that's part of the beauty of the art hive is it's not language reliant right it's um it, there's lots of ways to demonstrate uh, how to make some of the projects we're working on and the students engage uh, in that and really the communication is between peers it's just really social time and then some of them have have really gotten a, a handle on English and a, have ended up being kind of mini leaders within the group. So play roles of translators um, and and sort of facilitators. So there are some, you know, one or two who definitely potentially could become leaders mm -hmm. within the archive process, which would certainly be a future goal to actually create leaders out of the students and have them facilitate some of the archive process. What kind of projects are they creating? Oh my gosh, everything. So Kathea come, comes in every session with a, with a focus project of every session, but we also have stations where the students can work on independent projects or draw if they choose not to. So we've done a lot of kind of paper mache. We've done, uh, we've created lanterns out of jars. We've done printmaking, um, sketching, still life, uh, basic still life instruction with the students really engaged quite well with. Um, really crochet knitting <laughs> so a bit of everything yeah. Every, a little bit of everything yeah. and it, and some of it is Kathea kind of creating um uh kind of bringing the projects in but it's it's we've also noticed that the students themselves are saying we'd like to know more about this we'd like to do this and so we we try to listen to that and make that happen for the students as well so you mentioned that this particular part of the project is drawing to a close that so there's going to be an art show That's uh, right. where would you like to see this go in the future would, is this something that you would like to see more of happening in in the province oh absolutely there is a little art hive on the west coast actually there's an art therapist who runs a little hive over there and i need to find out more about that um yeah so we are actually moving to another to a uh, uh, the next phase uh where myself and my mun-based colleagues are are going to seek multi-year funding to try and uh 
create a, a, a community located art hive while and do our best to keep the Holy Heart Art Archive running at least for a couple of months each year. Um, so that that's kind of our next step is to kind of uh, diversify uh, the programming and to create leaders of some of the students uh, that took part in this archive, which doesn't at this point doesn't feel like it's going to be that hard to do because I, I have a feeling it'll be quite an organic transition for the students. Yeah. If people want to get in touch with you, want a bit more information, what's what's the easiest way for them to reach you? Probably through MUN, my MUN email, which is easy to find in the MUN directory, but it's uh, leah.lewis at mun.ca. And I'm, I'd welcome any inquiries. Great. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ich underscore nl. Thanks for listening.